How's everybody doing this morning? Uh, just, I was cruising through uh, the book of Jonah this week, and I just wanted to share what uh, God put on my heart. So in uh, Jonah 2, the Bible records Jonah's prayer inside the, the fish. And um, he starts off by saying, he says, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths, from the depths of the grave, I called for help. And you listen to me, to my cry. Now, uh, as we know, Jonah, he previously was running from God um, and was in complete disobedience. But God was faithful to Jonah. And um, he goes on to say in his prayer, When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, uh, to your holy temple. Um, God always hears us no matter where we're at. Um, all we need to do is call on the Lord. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. Um, it doesn't matter what um, great fish you're in. It could be the great fish of sorrow, the great fish of lust, the great fish of anger, resentment, bitterness. It doesn't matter, um, but... If we call to God, wherever we're at, he's going to hear us, just like when Jonah was in the fish. Um, Jonah, Jonah ends his prayer with, salvation comes from the Lord. And the um, pastor touched on it this morning, that um, this word salvation in the Hebrew is actually Yeshua, um, also known as Jesus. And um, Jesus came, he was born, he died for our sins, and um, he's alive, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and he's waiting for you guys to call out to him. So it doesn't matter, you know, <clears throat> anybody in YouTube land, anybody's here. Jesus loves you, and it doesn't matter where you're at. He wants to want you to call to him, and um, he's waiting for you. Guys like us ought to know, huh? Good morning, everybody. Glad to have you here with us. I have a couple of announcements. Uh, let's see. Uh, next Sunday, of course, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, we're going to be celebrating the resurrection of our Lord. And we are going to have an Easter brunch, which is going to be in between our first and second services. Uh, so at 10.15, we're going to have a brunch in the fellowship hall with pancakes, sausage, eggs, yogurts, parfaits, whatever that is, and coffee and juice, right? Is there going to be donuts there? It doesn't say donuts. If not, I'll see you after, you know. Um, but that's going to be next Sunday. We're going to be, we're going to be celebrating the, the resurrection of our Lord. And, and I remember when I was a kid, and I was talking to somebody in between services about this, that we used to spend, church people used to spend an inordinate amount of time together. We used to have so many activities and so many, and here's the thing, none of it was forced, you know what I'm saying? None of it was because, well, we better go or the pastor's going to be preaching about us on Sunday. Like there was a time I remember in my youth when that's where the people of God wanted to be was in fellowship. They saw church as an oasis. They saw it as a place in the midst of a dry desert where they could get a drink, uh, where they could have friends who would come around them and, and help them bind up the wounds of this life and encourage them forward in their faith. 
and the most crazy and amazing things. And we talk about it. There's memes and stuff on Facebook. You know, you want to you mess up a millennial, show them one of these, and it's a phone with a cord. You know what I mean? And there's, ha-ha, it's funny. But there's so many things that have changed so dramatically. And it's amazing, just like so many other things, there's so many wonderful aspects of the, of the newer technologies and the things that we enjoy. But at the same time, we have become isolated from what, this is before COVID, right? And it's almost like every single one of us is a kingdom unto himself. Uh, and, and, there's, and there's just this thing where we go through our week and it's just us and our people and our circle. And that's where we move in and that's where we travel in and that's the only people we deal with. And then we get together on Sunday or we have a special time of fellowship and it's a blessing and we're encouraged. And then we go back to our kingdoms. But more and more and more, it seems, as time has gone on, we've become isolated from one another. You know, the Bible talks about that first century church. They met daily in one another's homes. Now, I'm not, please don't show up at my house tomorrow, okay? All right, I'm at, I mean, if you need to, I'm there, all right? But that's not what I'm trying to say. And, and we never, ever want to do anything in this place that doesn't come from the Spirit, right? So hopefully, your pastors, my father is a senior pastor, and me is his young Padawan learner, okay? When we're preaching and when we're talking to you about the things of God, what we're trying to do is express to you something that the Holy Spirit has expressed to us or put on our hearts, and we're encouraging in you in those things, but only God can do a work in your heart. We don't ever want to be a church, and we don't ever want to be a people who gets whipped up through emotion to do things or make changes in our lives. You know, it's like, it's like the, 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 that still small voice. I heard Pastor Chuck once talking about, you know, these movements of God and these movements that we see go through the church so many times. It's like this amazing fireworks show. And you go and watch fireworks, good fireworks. It's the best, you know what I'm saying? And it's just so, oh, and you're, ooh, and you're, oh, ooh, ah. And he goes, and then the fireworks, as quickly as it started, is over with. And if you were to stay there in that place and continue to look up in the skies, you would see the nighttime stars, millions and billions of nighttime stars that are so much grander and so much more fantastic than any fireworks display that man could ever produce ever. And they're always there. They've been there and they'll be there. And we give them no regard because they don't produce the ooh and the ah because we're so used to them. And such is is it with the kingdom of heaven and with the things of God? We can be some so become so enamored with the oohs and the ahs of this life that we forget that God is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He's unchanging, he's unyielding in his love towards you, and he wants to stir us up. He wants to stir us up towards good works in Jesus Christ. So we never, ever want to work things up in, 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 in you guys emotionally to get you to do things. You know, Probably in some point in your Christian walk, you've been there and you've done that thing. You know what I mean? I remember going home from pastor's conferences. I'm throwing away all my Bruce Lee videos, you know, that ungodly heathen, you know, beating people up, you know, and, and, and I'd throw them all the way and get rid of them. I'm not watching that kind of stuff anymore. And then six months later, I'm walking past the, the discount bin at Walmart. And there was like the, the entire Bruce Lee collection for $5.99. You know, I start twitching and I gotta have it, you know. Because it wasn't a thing that God produced in me. It was me trying to work up righteousness in myself. And if there's anything that we've learned about mankind and our own hearts is that we cannot work up righteousness in ourselves. It is a work of God. It is supernatural. It is miraculous. 
when the, when the disciples were, were, were in awe at the miracles that Jesus performed, and he said, are you in awe of this? I tell you the truth, you'll do greater miracles than this. And if you have faith like a mustard seed, you'll be able to say to this mountain, be removed from your place and it will be so. Well, Jesus wasn't talking about Christians going around and literally pushing mountains around. Ooh, I can move a mountain. What he was talking about was the salvation of a soul the taking of a soul from chains of darkness and death and sin and misery and eternal damnation and taking that soul and ushering it into eternal life and seeing it illuminated and enlightened by the Spirit of God is the greatest miracle that's ever occurred in the history of time. And Jesus says, I'm putting you in charge of that one. I'm going to run it. I'm going to make it happen. And I want you to be my hands and my feet. He has to do the work, though. And so we ought to just be a people that are always constantly saying, Lord, change me. Lord, show me. Like King David, search me, O God, and look and see if there's inside of me a wicked way and a wicked thing. Know my hearts and my thoughts. And somehow we're talking about Easter brunch, but I, I, I say it, I, I, and, and if you can't make it to Easter brunch, that's fine, okay? Okay, you can make it. If you, <laughs> It says in, wait a minute, that's Easter brunch. Um, I encourage you, I encourage you. And I say this simply as an encouragement. If you don't, if you don't listen or it doesn't work for you, wait for the Lord to put this in your heart. I'm just, I'm just up here talking. But anytime that we have moment or we have an opportunity to fellowship together, to spend time together, to encourage one another in the things of God and to look for that soon appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, um, I would encourage you to, to take part in that and be a, be a part of that. We need it. We need it. You know, the Bible talks about gathering together all the more as we see that day approaching. I think we see that day approaching. Um, the other announcement, adult dinner uh, is April 12th, okay? And that's going to be at Carabas in Fayetteville at 6 o'clock p.m. There's a sign-up sheet in the foyer. That's, and that's, the adult dinner is also an awesome time of fellowship, okay? So encouragement there. Uh, today, this morning, Dad has asked me to talk about uh, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We're, we're celebrating Palm Sunday today, which, of course, is the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, what we call the triumphal and triumphant entry. When Jesus rode in on this colt, the foal of a donkey, and the people laid out palm branches before him and began to sing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the disciples were leading this praise, and the people were praising, and the Pharisees said, tell your disciples to be quiet, because they knew that what the people were proclaiming was that messianic statement that they were proclaiming Jesus Christ to be Messiah. And so the, the, the Pharisees told the, the disciple to Jesus, excuse me, told Jesus rather, tell your disciples to be quiet. And you guys all know the famous statement by Jesus where he said, I tell you the truth. If they were to remain silent, these very stones would cry out. And we're going to talk about the why a little bit this morning for that. The reason Jesus said that was not just because, not just because I'm so great, and you, if you only knew who I was, and that I must be praised in this day. That's all true. But because Jesus was pointing to the fact that it had been preordained and prophesied by Almighty God to the very day, that day that Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on the donkey was exactly the day that it had been prophesied by the prophet Daniel that Messiah would show up on the scene. And Jesus held them accountable to know what the word of God had said. 
Jesus, I'm going to say that again, held the people accountable to know what the word of God had said concerning him. And they couldn't claim ignorance. And they couldn't claim, I got a bad preacher. You don't understand. I went to a mediocre church. They couldn't say any of those things. No, God says, you are accountable before me. That's one of the reasons that the, the, the people of this world and humanity, so that you don't get mad as a Christian, understand and know these things. The reason that people cling to secular humanism and the ideas of, of, of evolution and things of this nature, because, and in one scientific journal, they actually said, no matter what we discover or don't discover, or no matter what we know or may not know or are unsure of, we can never allow a divine foot in the door. That's from scientists. And let me explain to you why. They could, with their theses and their gigantic brains, talk circles around me. I'm a simpleton, okay? But let me tell you the why. And I don't care what anybody says. The why is, is because if there is a creator, then you are accountable to him. And you are accountable to know what he requires of you. And that, my friends, is a hard pill to swallow. Especially when the creator says, you are a sinner. You are lost and you are separated from me, and you will be separated from me for all of eternity because you are born within the condition that every man, woman, and child ever born in the history of the ages is born with, and that condition is sin. And sin separates from God. We are all cursed with it. And there is one way that we can have fellowship, that we can be returned to a relationship with Almighty God, and that is through atonement atonement. And that's what I want to talk to you guys about this morning. Atonement. It is so important. It is so huge. We can talk about Palm Sundays. We can get our palm branches. We can talk about Easter next week and celebrate the resurrection. And it's wonderful that we do so, but never forget and never misunderstand and never construe these holidays with God's work. More importantly, never construe these holidays with God's word. Because they stand aside and beyond and above. Atonement. What is Easter about? The resurrection. Well, Jesus died on the cross. No, no. What is it about? Atonement. 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 I want you to leave this place with that ringing in your ears. Atonement. Okay? Say it with me. Atonement. I want it to be in your heads and in your hearts as you go through your week. Atonement. Atonement. I need atonement. When do you need atonement? Every day I need atonement. He needs atonement. She needs atonement. They need atonement. That is the, the clarion call of the gospel of Jesus Christ and that same call that ought to be within each of our hearts as we go from this place into our workplace, into our homes, everywhere we go. Atonement, atonement, full atonement. The triumph of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection began all the way back in the garden. You all know the story. Adam and Eve were put in the garden to tend it and to enjoy their fellowship with one another and to enjoy fellowship with the Lord. But man and woman fell to sin when they ate of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God had told them you can eat of any tree in the garden, but not of that tree. He gave them that choice. There has to be choice in love. We've talked about that to some extent. And they chose to go their own way. They chose to be able to see things their own way. We want to do it our way. And you can make it as simple as that. That's what taking from that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is all about. I want to do things my way. 
going back to what I was talk, talking about, humor, hum, humanist, secular scientists, and, and they're clinging to the evolutionary theory and all of these things. Understand, it's about us doing it our own way. And that lives in everyone, those of us who've been atoned for and those of us who haven't been atoned for. The only difference is I've been atoned for that thing that still lives in my life, that I have to repent and ask God to forgive me and ask God to help me move on from always doing it my way. When we find ourselves in trouble, when we find ourselves in distress, when we find ourselves far, far from the Lord, it's always for the same reason. We've been doing it our way. And that's what that fruit represents. It doesn't matter what kind of fruit it was. It was a pomegranate. I have no idea. I'm just saying. It has no, makes no difference. What it was about was I'm going to do it my way, not God's way. And so as God is pronouncing his judgment upon Eve and then Adam and then the serpent, he says this key statement to the serpent. And you know this from Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed, that is, Satan, it's what seed? Seed of what? Seed of the serpent. That is the seed that is going to go from this place, that seed that is going to infect all of the world, that seed of sin, that seed of wickedness, that seed of rebellion, that seed of doing it our own way. That's the seed that God's talking about. And between the woman's seed. Well, we know that the woman doesn't carry the seed, the man does. So the seed that God is referring to when he speaks to Eve is the virgin birth. I'm going to put enmity between your seed and her seed, the things that Jesus Christ is going to come to accomplish and the things that, the, that the, the people who are living according to the wages of sin are seeking to do in their life are going to be at enmity with one another. There's going to be a war that's going on between those two things. That's why Jesus said to his disciples, if the world hates you, remember, it hated me first. Why? There must always be enmity between the things of God and the things of this world. The two can never walk along the road together in agreement. It can never be. For as the Bible says, what has light to do with darkness? There's always going to be that enmity. And he said, you shall or excuse me, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so God drove the man and the woman out of the garden and barred them from the way to the tree of life for it was no longer available to them because of sin. It's an interesting thing, and you talk about the tree of life. The tree of life was there in the garden. We don't know much about it. The tree of life is going to be finally in the kingdom of God. At the end of Revelation, there's a tree of life there too. And it would seem that they were given permission to eat of the tree of life before the fall. God never says you can't eat of the tree of life, only of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And once they do that and are separated from God because of sin, then they no longer have access to the tree of life. Now, whether it was a fruit that you could eat or just living in his presence, I have no idea. I think it's silly to try to figure that kind of stuff out. But it was no longer available to them. Why? Because God had told them, on the day that you eat of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, you will surely die. What did he mean by that? The wages of sin is death separation from God. Again, it's the dawn discharging commercial, right? And the dawn discharging, the drop goes in the pan of grease and the grease goes like that and just separates. God cannot, or I should rather say, sin cannot abide in the presence of God. That's why he told Moses, no one can see my face and live, Moses. It's not about you. It's about the fact that you're a sinful human being. You cannot be in my presence because of sin. 
So immediately, the emergency of atonement becomes at the forefront of all of human history. What do we do to atone for this? What do we do to make this right? Lord, how do we fix this? He drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And immediately after this, God institutes a blood sacrifice for the atonement of sin. Hebrews 9.22. Or, excuse me, uh, I'm going to read that after. Uh, also, the Bible says, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed, clothed them. So understand, in order for God to make tunics of skin for Adam and Eve, what had to happen? Something died. Something died. Man and the man and the woman were sit there and forced to watch as God showed them the cost. As God showed them the price. This little lamb, this little sheep was something that you were supposed to tend. It was something that you were supposed to take care of and show your love to. And this is what sin does. And this is the only way that sin can be covered up. And so an animal is killed and its blood is shed to show them the cost of sin and the only thing that can atone for it. Hebrews 9.22 says this, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The story of Cain and Abel is one of offering the prescribed sacrifice of blood versus coming to God your own way. Of course, God corrects Cain, but rather than obeying the voice of God, he instead, because why? He wants to continue doing it his own way and doesn't want to offer the prescribed sacrifice. He instead turns and kills his brother, as though by doing that, God will then be forced to accept his offering, which was exactly whatever he wanted to give. We know Cain is cursed, and he's sent out from that place, and he becomes the father of that next civilization that brings about the great flood. The consequences of sin become fully realized. Understand that. When Cain went out from that place and he started the civilization, they ended up bringing about the destruction of all mankind. That is nothing else and nothing short as the consequences of sin being fully realized. The wages of sin has always been death. The wages of sin will always be death and it will always bring about destruction and devastation wherever it goes. And when you see that in the world around you, make no mistake, it's for the same reason. Immediately following the events of the flood that came about as a part uh, as that came about uh, as a consequence of unbridled and unchecked sin, God immediately does what with Noah? He reinstitutes the blood sacrifice with Noah. First thing that happens when Noah gets off the ark in Genesis eight twenty. So Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar, a blood sacrifice. Uh, then God tells humanity, he tells Noah and his family to spread out over the entire earth. They get about as far as Babylon. You know this story uh, from, from Genesis chapter 10. Mankind once again goes his own way, creating the ancient city of Babylon and attempting to build a tower, that Tower of Babel. Well, what is that tower? Was it astrological in nature? Was it a radio? I mean, what was it? What was the purpose of the tower? Here's what we need to know. The tower is representative of man's ascension to a higher enlightenment apart from God and the blood sacrifices. 
That's what the Tower of Babel represents. Man's ascension to a high... Sound familiar? Sound familiar? Man's attempt to reach a higher enlightenment apart from God's word and the blood sacrifices. God knows that this will be the end of man again, so he confuses their language and scatters them to the four corners of the earth. Genesis chapter 10 covers these events and also the table of nations uh, that go forth from that place. Excuse me. So immediately after this, once the, the, the people are scattered and they go throughout and the table of nations is given us, God knows um, exactly what he's doing. Okay, and everything that God allows and that happens is for a purpose. Immediately after this, God shifts gears from dealing with the whole world to one family specifically as he begins to focus in on that one who was promised to defeat Satan back in the garden. You will bruise his heel and he will bruise your head. As Abram is called and he goes out in faith to the future land of promise, God appears to him and he pronounces on Abram and his descendants the blessing. And that all the nations of the world will be blessed through you, Abram. And Abram's response is to do what? To build an altar. That's the first thing that Abram does when God pronounces that initial blessing on Abram and what he intends to do through him. Abram builds an altar. What's the first thing that we got to get to? The sacrifice. The atonement. The atonement. The atonement. And that's really what the promise was all about the atonement. Genesis 12, 7, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. The first time in the word, we have the promise and the sacrifice together. As time went on, God would dovetail these two concepts into one synonymous truth, which is God's promises to Abraham and the need for atoning sacrifice. I'm going to say that again. God's promises through Abraham and the need for atoning sacrifice. And later, of course, in Abraham's life, and perhaps the most amazing picture of God sacrificing his only son occurs when he says to Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, Abram, to a place that I will show you, and there I want you to offer him up as a burnt offering to me. And Abraham doesn't flinch. Abraham never asks a question. He gets up in the morning, he takes Isaac, and he goes to the place that God has that God said specifically, I will show you exactly where to go. The place was Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is where Abraham took Isaac, and that's where God said, here, Abraham, here is the place. And Abraham took his son, and he bound him to the altar, and he was about to plunge the knife in when an angel of the Lord stopped him. Abraham, now I know. Abraham, now I know that your heart is for me. And the name of that place became in the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Well, what you might not know about this specific location is that later, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, would have the vision of the ladder. You know Jacob's ladder? The ladder that ascended into heaven and the angels were ascending and descending upon it. The way made between God and man. Where do you suppose Jacob was when he had that vision? Mount Moriah. And later after that, that's where David would, would, would purchase the threshing floor of Aruna and begin his plans to build the temple. And Solomon's temple was built, guess where? Mount Moriah. And then later, uh, after the, after the uh, Babylonian captivity, the next temple was built on Mount Moriah. And where do you suppose was the area where Jesus Christ was crucified? In the mountain of God, it will be provided since the beginning God has been saying to his people, atonement, atonement, 
Atonement. There is nothing more important. There is nothing preeminent to that thing. Atonement. And he was showing Jesus from the start. Uh, one other beautiful instance where Abraham uh, was shown by God a picture of that full atonement and the, the, the full uh, realization of that promise through Jesus Christ is when, remember, him and Lot separated. Remember, both of them were so wealthy and had so many sheep and goats and servants that they began to have problems between the two, and they said, let's separate. And he gave Lot the choice, and Lot chose that fertile valley that was near Sodom and Gomorrah. And so that's where Lot goes and he dwells. And next time we see Lot, he's in the city gates. But there's this great battle that takes place between these kings, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah are defeated and taken captive along with Lot and his family. So Abraham gets together his fighting men, which are like several hundred, and they go out and they fight against these kings and these vast armies, and God gives this supernatural victory over these in, insurmountable odds, and Lot and his family are rescued. And we have this that, that, that we're shown in the scriptures as he's coming back from that battle, we, we read this, Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 to 20, and it's like a blurb, and we don't hear anything ever about it again until Hebrews, when the writer is talking about this same occurrence. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, which literally is ancient Jerusalem, Jerusalem was built from the ancient city of Salem, um, let's see, brought out, here we, here we have it, Abraham's coming back from this battle, and here comes this man, here comes this figure called Melchizedek, the king of Salem, which means king of righteousness. It also means king of peace. And Salem was ancient Jerusalem. And here comes this mysterious person, and here's the transaction that takes place. He brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high, and he blessed Abraham and said, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth, a tithe of all. And we don't hear about Melchizedek again until Hebrews, until the writer of Hebrews is saying, it was a picture of Jesus. Now, uh, as I said earlier, Melchizedek means king of peace and king of righteousness, uh, and this Melchizedek, who is either a direct picture of Jesus Christ or actually a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ himself, brings out his tokens of peace to Abraham and its bread and wine. Now, what do you suppose these things were speaking of? And what do you suppose God was trying to say? Huh, Abram, you have no idea. When I talked about that blessing that's going to come through your family to all the nations of the world, hey, Abram, you don't even know what this is. Let's have communion. Hey, Abram, you don't even know what this means, but let's have communion because his body's going to be broken and his blood is going to be shed. Abram, the promises that you're looking forward to through a son, through a nation, Abram, that's just, this, that's just, the, that's just the surface. You haven't even scratched the surface of what my true plan is. What is my true plan? Say it with me, atonement, <laughs> atonement, atonement. And that's what the picture is. Passover is the next major event in the history of the sacrificial system. And here's what it says in Exodus chapter 12, verses 3 and 5, two, ten, five through 10. Speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, 
You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boil it at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now, this, of course, is the major sacrifice that took place in ancient Israel. It was the thing that was looked forward to all year long, was the Passover. And still to this day, the Jews in Israel celebrate the Passover, the Passover. What's the Passover about? Atonement, atonement, atonement. Now, from their perspective in the economy of, in, that they were living in, they were slaves in Egypt, and they were looking to freedom from the bondage of chains of physical slavery. And in the plagues that God was sending in order to get them out of Egypt, the last and the greatest of the plagues, of course, was the killing of the firstborn by the angel of death. And it's at that point in time that God gives this, this word to Moses to institute Passover. And it's so right on time, and it's so specific and purposeful, and for an exact reason that God gives it to him at this point in time. Moses, you don't know even what this fully means. But there's an angel of death that is passing over this world, and it seeks to take all in its path, and all have been given to it, save those who have taken part in the sacrifice of the Lamb and on whose hearts, on the doorposts, and on the lintels of their hearts have the blood of the Lamb been spread and sprinkled. And only those people will the angel of death pass over. Moses, you don't even know what I'm doing and what I'm accomplishing. But that's why God was so adamant about them doing it to perfection as he had told them. As the Israelites went from Egypt to Mount Sinai, God began to show all people for the first time just how immense the need for sacrifice actually was as he lays out for them tabernacle worship and the sacrifices needed for God to be among the people. You want to be my people? You want me to be your God? Let me show you the cost. Let me show you what it takes for you to be able to have me in your presence. Let me show you what it takes for you to be able to have fellowship with me and a relationship with me. And God lays out the tabernacle and all of the sacrificial system and all of the laws that went along with being a follower of God and having him be able to even be in your presence, which Peter would later, many years later, say that law that neither we nor our forebears were able to do. It's so immense. And God was showing them, you have no idea the cost that's involved. And with Moses and then Joshua and Caleb as their overseers, the system remains intact. But of course, as time passed, with the exception of small periods of obedience, the people utterly failed to keep the commandments of the Lord and to worship him and to make atonement appropriately. The Israelites went from being idolatrous during the times of the judges and the kings, with small breaks in that, to being super religious after the Babylonian captivity. And while being ruled over by other nations, their focus became more and more fixated on the Messiah as they longed to be delivered from the rule of these Gentile nations. Deliverance from man 
and not from sin became the focus of the nation. The mistake that they made was in not seeing that God's plan always had been focused on freeing them from sin and reconciling the relationship between them and him and not in freeing them physically from the Greeks and the Romans. But that was exactly what the sacrifices and the prophecies were leading them. And all of Scripture is full of imagery that God was using to show them that the Christ was coming for that expressed purpose. Leviticus 16, 8 through 10, Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering, but the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it and to let it go as a scapegoat into the wilderness. In other words, someone has to die for someone to be set free. Someone has to die for someone to be set free. And Jesus himself addressed this during his ministry, both to his enemies and to his friends, as neither was able to see what he was really here to do. To the Pharisees, he said this, and the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. And here it is. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. What is he saying? You're tame. Because the word of God says what it says, and you say, no, but I'll do it my way. On Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and after the people had cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we have the gut-wrenching scene as Jesus weeps over the city. And why does he weep? Because they ought to have known that this was their day and that he was their Lord. Luke 19, 41 and 42, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from you. What was he talking about? What day? Dad talked about it this morning. Daniel, the book of Daniel, the prophetic book of Daniel in the ninth chapter, the archangel gives to Daniel a prophecy in which it lays out the exact day that Messiah will come to the people. And it says immediately after that, he will be cut off, but not for himself. Now, there's a book uh, called The Coming Prince by Sir Robert Anderson. You can get it on Amazon. You can find it on Amazon. It's called The Coming Prince. Sir Robert Anderson was a, an investigator for the Scotland Yard, and this is how he became a believer by studying this prophecy of Daniel. And he counts, forth, counts forward from the decree to, to rebuild Jerusalem that the, gate, the angel told Daniel about, and it gives him the exact day, the amount of days till Messiah comes. Sir Robert Anderson took that labor upon himself to count the days, taking into account holidays, leap years, uh, everything. And he came to the day that that angel was talking about. And guess what day it was? To the day, Palm Sunday. To the day. Jesus rode into the day of which it was prophesied. And he wept over Jerusalem and said, because you should have known that this was your day. But now it's hidden from your eyes. And to his disciples, who still did not even believe after he had been crucified and raised, he said this to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart 
to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter his glory? And beginning, here it is, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that must have been some message. Can you imagine? Jesus is going to preach this morning a message on all the law and the prophets. Sign me up. You know what I'm saying? Get me some jolt. Get me some monster energy drink. I don't care what it takes, baby. You know what I mean? I don't want to fall out the window. I want to hear every word. And it says, from the law and through all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus expected them to know who he was. Why? Why? Because of what scripture said. Remember when he gives the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And the rich man ends up in hell while while Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom. And he says, send Abraham to warn my brothers about this place because I'm in agony here. And remember what Abraham said to the rich man. They have the law and the prophets. And if they have the law and the prophets and they're unwilling to listen to them, then even, here's what he says, this is important, then even if one to be, were to be raised from the dead, they would still not believe. And wasn't that the truth? They didn't believe Jesus in his life. And when he was risen from the dead and ascended to the Father, they still didn't believe in him. Why? How? Why? Because they didn't believe in the inerrancy and then the power of God's word. And because they wanted to do it, and this is maybe the biggest part of it, their way, which of course is the way of Cain. But Isaiah had said in chapter 53, verses 3 to 7, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. But surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus himself alluded to famous occurrences throughout their history to point out that it was speaking of him. John 3, 14. Is that what the rest of you feel like on the inside because I'm going so long? Is that okay? Well, keep crying because here we go. We're almost there. We're almost there. A couple short more hours and we'll be there, okay? Remember, all the law and the prophets. Uh, Jesus said in John chapter 3, verses 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And of course, that was that famous uh, thing when the people were grumbling against God and grumbling against Moses as they were coming near the promised land, and God sent fiery serpents among them, and they began to be bitten by the snakes and were dying because of the snake bites. And God instructed Moses, I want you to take a pole, and I want you to make a bronze serpent and wrap it around the pole and lift it up, and anyone who looks to that will be saved. Anyone who looks to that and sees that and has faith to believe in it will be saved and will not die. And Jesus was saying, that was a picture of me. What else was it saying? Why a serpent? Because serpent is a symbol of sin. And Jesus Christ became sin. He became sin. We knew that we sing the song, who knew no sin, that we might become children of God. 
And he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, David himself said in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, if David calls him Lord, how is he then his son? That's Luke 20, 41 to 44. In Matthew 12, 40, Jesus said this, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Later, when the church began, the apostles used these very Old Testament scriptures to show that Jesus was exactly who he had said he was. Paul started, of course, his ministry amongst the Jewish people, opening scriptures and proving to them, the word says, from the law and the prophets that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. Acts 9.22, Acts 18.28, that's exactly what it says. Later on in the epistles, some more examples. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written in Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. We just studied that. The writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 40 when he makes this statement about Jesus. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come. And in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. And what was the will of God? Say it with me. Atonement, atonement, atonement. That's what today is about. That's what today is about. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who the Bible says was slain from the foundations of the world. That means when Adam and Eve were taking their first bite, God had already paid the price for it through his son, Jesus Christ. That's the love that he has for you and I. And that's the power of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Do we know the word? Do we understand how important it is in our day? The Bible, when we get into the book of Revelation, it says, blessed is the one who studies this prophecy and understands it. Well, that prophecy, my friend, is about things that are yet to come, that have not yet happened, as as so many of the other things throughout Scripture. And God holds us accountable, just as he held the people of Israel. Do you know what the Word of God says? And do you know what your God requires of you? Because we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And this is not a gloom and doom thing. This is a glorious hope thing. Here's the greatest thing about the atonement you got, okay, in Jesus Christ. His righteousness makes up for your lacking. How far this week do you suppose you fell short of the glory of God? I was almost there. Listen to me, my friends. You were as far away from the glory of God, okay, as an amoeba is away from the furthest planet in our solar system. A miss is as good as a mile, okay? If we're both jumping to show our amazing leaping capability, you'd be surprised, you know what I'm saying? And I get to the top of the Empire State Building in my jump, and you only get to the third floor, but the goal is the moon. What difference does it make? Jesus Christ came and he died on the cross for your sins so that every single day you could wake up and say, praise Jesus, his grace and his mercy is new every morning. And he is faithful even when I am faithless. I've been redeemed and he will never cast me out and he will never deny me. That's the atonement. 
It's not about judgment. The Bible says that mankind in this world was already under judgment because of sin. Jesus didn't come into the world, he said, to condemn it. He said, I've come that the world through me might be saved. It's the most glorious message. It's the most glorious hope that's ever been proclaimed in the history of the ages. But there's still Cain and there's still Abel. I want to be able. Even if it costs me my life, I want to be able. I want to do what God's called me to do. Not because he's keeping a checklist, friend. Not because if you don't add up to some standard, you're not getting in. You're in because of the blood of the Lamb. You're in because of your simple faith. But how much do you want to be in his service? How much do you want to be an ambassador of the atonement? That's the work he wants to do in each one of us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, and we're grateful, we're thankful to you, Father, for your amazing, powerful word, Lord, and the testimony of Jesus Christ that resonates from Genesis to Revelation, Lord, and also resonates in our hearts, Lord, as we read it together and we get excited about the things that you've promised through him, the things that you've promised that are yet to come. Lord, we pray that you'd give us the divine focus that we need to have, Lord, to be settled in our hearts on the things that are above and not on the things that are below, Lord, so that we don't run around dismayed and angry like everybody else in the world is, Lord, but that we have something that they don't have, and that is hope through the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, may that live in us, and may that shine through us, Father. I pray, Lord, now that you bless each and every one of these people who are here today, Father, they're yours. And I pray that you'd watch over them and you'd protect them, that you'd be with them and you'd cause your face to shine upon them, that you'd be gracious to them, Lord, and that you would lead each of them, Father, along the path of righteousness to the foot of the cross, Lord, and there all the burdens of this life and all the burdens of this world, they would shed at the foot of Calvary, Lord, as they look full in your wonderful face. May Jesus shine through each of us, we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.